Everything you do is making an impact in this world. This is not an elitist issue. This is a quality of life issue. How dare you? And I feel like it's my responsibility as a human being. So what? The world is at stake. You're listening to Eco Chic, a podcast about climate, sustainability, and eco-conscious lifestyles. What, like it's hard? Hey y'all, welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz and it's so nice to have you here today. I'm excited for y'all to listen to today's conversation because we are speaking with Danny Washington. Danny Washington is one of my personal role models and I am so thankful to have had this opportunity to connect with her. Danny Washington is a TV host and science communicator who is the first African-American woman to host her own science television series. Currently, Danny is featured as a correspondent on a weekly national CBS series called Mission Unstoppable with host Miranda Cosgrove. Danny has also hosted Exploration Nature Knows Best on Fox, a STEM educational TV series that featured the latest advancements in bio-inspired technology and design, which is the show that made her the first African-American woman, again, to host her own science television series. So, so exciting. Danny has also worked on other STEM shows and productions, including Science, the Bleep Out of It for Facebook Watch, Strange Evidence on the Science Channel, Untamed Science for Pearson Publishing, and Ocean Gems. She is also a co-star with Jaden Smith in the official educational outreach for the theatrical film After Earth, starring Jaden and his father, Will Smith. Danny has become known as a thought leader and an advocate for science communication and ocean conservation, particularly given her background in marine science. At just age 21, Danny co-founded, along with her mom, the Big Blue and You, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to inspiring and educating youth about marine conservation through arts and media. She also created and co-produced a new initiative called the Sea Youth Rise Up, which is a collaborative effort to elevate the role of youth leadership in ocean conservation policy and advocacy on World Ocean Day. So as I said, she is a superstar. She has done it all. She's someone that I genuinely deeply look up to and have for such a long time. And the way that we were put together actually is because Danny is on the Creative Council of Climate Power 2020. Climate Power 2020 is an independently run project created by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, the League of Conservation Voters, and the Sierra Club. Climate Power 2020 is essentially a team of political strategists determined to change politics around climate change, especially in 2020, the year of this election, in order to build momentum necessary for bold action come 2021. Climate Power 2020 is a collection of researchers and creatives, organizers, social media experts, activists, communicators, And they're now fighting to make climate a leading issue in the election. And Danny and I do talk about that, the value of the climate conversation, especially during this last election cycle. Something that is really cool about Climate Power 2020 is now that the election is over, we've been able to have conversations around democracy and climate action and how we hope this next administration will respond to the demands of the climate voters. So I'm very thankful for Climate Power 2020 for reaching out to me and facilitating this conversation. I am so thankful again to Danny for having this conversation with me, inspiring me again as an individual, but also so thankful during this episode that she shares some of her insights on the value of science communication. Again, climate plans and climate action moving forward. She talks a lot about the individual and the value of 
really finding yourself in your community and making sure that your message resonates with the people around you. It's not about speaking to everyone. It's speaking to your people and speaking in a way about science that really resonates with people. So I love her messaging. I love everything she stands for. Like I said, she's one of my personal role models. So this was such a dream for me. And I really look forward to your feedback on this episode because I think it's full of a lot of really good take-home points, a lot of really good tips for you to also become a science communicator. And I also love that Danny and I are both from South Florida. We both grew up in the Miami area. So we do talk about that a little bit and the value of growing up in a really diverse place. We talk about equity and racism. And it is something that we just briefly touch on, but I want to make sure that I give a little bit of background on myself. I always like to say this before we have any sort of conversations on this show around social equity, around racism, around discrimination. I am by no means a perfect ally. I am a white woman. I am a Cuban-American. I'm a first-generation American citizen. And I'm so thankful to have grown up in such a diverse place like Miami, which is, like I said, something that Danny and I share and that we touch on in this episode. By no means is Miami like the perfect example of a truly diverse, respectful, equitable city. But I think it's an excellent introduction because it was an experience that taught me the value of diversity and it also taught me that racism is real. So again, by no means am I a perfect ally. I am, at the end of the day, a white woman, but I love having these conversations because I think it's important to continue educating ourselves and normalizing the conversation around racism and equity, and I hope that it continues to be a very central theme in all of our conversations moving forward. So if you want more conversations on equity and racism, intersectional environmentalism, I will link some of those in the show notes for you. There's a lot of really good ones to go back and look for, especially this year. But uh, with that, I'm really looking forward to your feedback on this episode. Like I said, Danny Washington is a superstar science communicator. She really does everything. She knows what it means to deliver a message. She knows what it means to resonate with people. And I truly cannot think of a better person to educate you and I on science communication. I like to think of myself as a science communicator because I host a podcast about climate change. And my background is in climate science, so that's really where my passions lie. I'm a sustainability professional, so I do communicate science every single day, all day. But by no means am I a science communicator to the level that Danny Washington is. This podcast is pretty free-flowing. If you've noticed, I, I don't really have any formal questions ever written out. Everything is natural that you listen to. And I think that the value of that is that you get really in-depth, honest conversations from this show. But my format is very, very different from what Danny does. She is delivering a message. She has a reason that she's telling you something. She is so thoughtful and eloquent and she can deliver something with such impact that you get it in this little soundbite. You get it in this little take-home bit. And I love that about her. And I love her work. I love what she stands for. So anyway, I will stop and get off my soapbox. Thank you so much for tuning in to Eco Chic. If you like this episode, make sure you share it on your Instagram story. Tag me at Eco Chic Podcast. I love seeing what you're listening to. Send it to a friend. Send it in your group chat. Play it out loud for your family. I think that they'll love it. And I look forward to further connecting with you. You can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe wherever you get a podcast so that you never miss an episode of Eco Chic. We've got lots of good ones coming up, especially in the new year. Danny and I also touch on the idea of misunderstood concepts in the science communication space or in science in general right now in current events. And one of those topics is the Green New Deal. I think that it's something that the general public very often misunderstands because it can be polarizing in the media. And then I realized after we had that conversation that I've never done an in-depth 
discussion about the Green New Deal on this show. So please look out for that. I am actively working on putting that together for you because I think it's important. I think that there is a lot of value in understanding the Green New Deal because it really speaks to the intersection of climate action and social equity. I think that there is also a lot of value in looking at how climate interacts with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So I will go ahead and also link in the show notes an episode with Claudia LaRue, First Secretary of the United Nations to the Dominican Republic. We talk about the Sustainable Development Goals. So I'll link that in the show notes, but also please keep an eye out for an episode on the Green New Deal because I think it's important and I am so sorry that I haven't put that out before. So with that, let's get into it. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Danny Washington all about science communication, democracy, equity, the value of your voice in the science conversation. Enjoy. Well, I'd love to just first open up with you as an individual, your career path, because I think that you have carved out such a special niche for yourself. So just take me back. Where did you start? How did you get into communications? How did you get to be where you are today? Well, again, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's it's truly an honor. And, you know, I love being able to share the story of my journey because it's definitely non-traditional. A lot of people usually ask me this exact question because they're like, how in the world did this even happen? And I, I've just always been the type of person that loves to take the path that's been less traveled. And so for me, as a young person in high school, I was determined at that point that I wanted to be a researcher. I was obsessed with marine science and marine biology, which I still am. But at that point, I thought for sure, I was going to be that person, that quintessential marine biologist going out in the field, collecting data, publishing papers, all of those kinds of things and making discoveries. That's that's what I wanted to do. But by the time I finished my undergrad degree at University of Miami in marine science, I realized very quickly that this missing link in the comms sector of academia and science in general was massive. There was there was so much missing there and and the information was not getting to the people who needed to hear it the most. And as a Miami native, someone who grew up going to, you know, our gorgeous beaches and exploring the Everglades, the natural habitats and ecosystems that we have in South Florida were very important to me. And the fact that my community members didn't value it as much as I did, you know, not to make it feel like I had to set the standard, but like they didn't realize the treasures that we had in our own backyard. And so from there, I felt really inspired and compelled to figure out how could I parlay this information a lot more effectively than had been done in the past. And I particularly wanted to speak to uh, especially communities of color, those who have less access to scientific information and younger audiences as well. I've always had a knack for speaking to kids in a way that keeps them engaged and and excited about information that may seem boring to others. Uh, And I worked as a naturalist for 10 years at the Biscayne Nature Center on Key Biscayne, which absolutely loved it because I was taking kids out into the ocean every day and, you know, having to figure out new techniques and, you know, 25, 30 little ones keeping their attention while we're out and I'm making sure nobody's getting stung by anything or wandering off and so many, you know, elements happening at the same time. But it was such a great training because it showed me that I was capable of doing that, of taking that basic science information that is, you know, kind of foundational when it comes to understanding how the natural world works and then translating that for these K through 12 kids who were hungry for information. And so Yeah. Fast forward after undergrad, I'm now 10 years into a career in science communications and media as a television host, podcast host, as well as like a public speaker and just someone who has aimed to become a voice and a face that is relatable and can help convey really, you know, important info, especially when it comes to climate change and the way that our world is transforming because of our behaviors as human beings. 
I love that so much. I have a lot of questions now to unpack with a couple of different snippets. I know that you mentioned just now that you have this knack for speaking with young people and you were interested in educating children. And I think that the youth voice lately in the climate movement is incredibly powerful. I don't think there's ever been a movement that I personally admire so much. I'm 24, but I'm speaking like I'm, you know, 65 years old. But I think the youth movement behind climate change is so incredibly powerful. And I'd love to talk to you, someone who is educating the youth, someone who likes to have a hand in these movements, the value of that youth voice of those 15 year olds going out and doing the school strikes and how the youth voice has really influenced the climate movement. Absolutely. I mean, it's such an important topic and I couldn't agree more. This generation of young leaders, next gen leaders are the most powerful that we've ever seen. Because if you think about it, they're the most informed, you know, to have the internet at their fingertips and have access to all this information instantaneously is just astounding. And depending on how you decide to use that information, how do you access it? You know, that changes everything. But for the most part, I think, especially here in the US and in Europe and in Africa, uh, we've seen this upsurgence of just incredibly intelligent and passionate young people who are willing to put everything on the line in order to step up and speak out for our planet because our lives literally depend on it. So they get it. They understand the gravity of our situation at this point and that we're at a crossroads where we can determine our future. And I'm so proud of how much they've stepped into that role and being someone in their 30s, I'm about to be 34 in like a month and a half. And I definitely have moments where I feel super old and outdated. But at the same time, I feel grateful that I had a chance to interact with this particular generation when they were younger and even now. And just to be a catalyst to help elevate their roles in this space, to make sure that youth voices are heard and to open doors in whatever way I can. And I think it all begins with connection. And so my role as a TV host, as a media personality, is to help ignite that connection and that excitement and curiosity. And that's what I do for a living. And I'm, I feel so blessed to have that role. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. That's incredible. How do you ignite that curiosity? How do you bring science to people who are not necessarily seeking it out? My main technique in bringing people into science and scientific information is through having fun and bringing them along for the adventure. And I think that the art of hosting television shows has been a little lost in the last decade or so because of reality television and the way and structure that a lot of TV shows are made nowadays. But I still think that there's so much power there. You know, to this day, every, every time I do interviews like this, I always talk about Bill Nye. He was somebody who ignited my curiosity as a kid. And, and to this day, still he does. And, and I think he's done that for several generations. And it was all because of his enthusiasm, his excitement about science and like just the idea that he made it just fun. And he was, he was obviously having fun while he was, you know, filming his television show. And so that's what I try to bring to the table all the time and to bring my own style and flair and conversation. Cause that's what I normally do. I'm usually interviewing scientists and science professionals to talk about their journey and acting as a translator. So they'll, you know, they'll spit out some information that's just like, whoop right over your head. And then it's my job to take that and, and essentially synthesize it in that moment and then regurgitate it in a way that is relatable and kind of in, in layman's terms. So that's, that's what I do. Right. I think that's amazing. And I think that there's so much value in your role, especially because you have a science background. I think that 
there's sometimes a bit of a disconnect between science communicators and the scientific community. And you hear it all the time in academia. I felt that way in school as well. There was always this push for science communicators and then no one was truly going out and being that bridge. And I'd love to talk to you a little bit about also how your science background has kind of influenced the way that you think about some of these current movements in the science community. I am off the top of my head. I know specifically I'm thinking about the Green New Deal. I feel like the Green New Deal gets a lot of talk right now for being too liberal or we're not doing enough or whatever it is. It's very polarizing. And it's something that a lot of people actually don't know a whole lot about. So how do you unpack such large movements or concerns or topics for the layperson? It begins with breaking it down into bite-sized pieces. You've got to be able to have these sound bites and information in paragraph form, literally, that you can put out, whether it's on a social media post or if it's something that you do in a news interview, you got to have that prepared and ready because to no fault of their own, like those who are deeply heavily involved in science and are currently the researchers collecting this data that we need, it's really tough to be able to pull yourself away and see the big picture because you're so involved in the nitty gritty every day. But that's where science communicators come in as the bridge, like you said, to be able to convey that information and pull what's important and pull out the highlights so that people outside of that bubble will be able to get it and, and hang and hang their coat on that piece of information and be able to then take it on to their own communities as well. So to know if you're an effective science communicator is to see that ripple effect where you know the people that your initial core group of people who maybe consumed your content are now rippling that out to their own audiences. And so when it comes to things like the Green New Deal, I'm a huge fan, obviously, because it's just it's a solution based approach to what we need right now for our country in order to help heal the planet as well as provide jobs and build our economy. We need more people who can understand it and move away from the knee-jerk responses that most people have, whether they think it's too liberal or not. It's just like, who else has a solution? Who has the answer? We need to continue to, to develop and continue to iterate on ideas like this. And so just by breaking it down, I think that's the beginning of it. And I know that sounds rudimentary, but it's, it's true. Like you've got to just sit there and take it bit by bit, piece by piece, pull it apart, and then figure out what resonates with your messaging, with your own lifestyle. How does it really apply to you? That's where you find the sweet spot. And then if you can communicate that in a way that makes sense, you're you're on the right track. I appreciate that because before we started recording, I said the same thing to you, that there is this pressure a lot of the time, especially when it comes to climate change, to consume content that doesn't really relate to your lifestyle. People feel like they need to know the data or read the reports. And that's great. But a lot of the time, if that's not something that you're already interested in, you're not going to seek it out. So right. making those scientific communications as relatable as possible for people and accessible, I think is really the key. Absolutely. And that's why I'm really proud to be a part of Climate Power 2020 as a climate influencer, as they like to call us. I know that term influencer, <laughs> a lot of people have a negative reaction to it just because of what it's you know, transformed to be recently. But when it comes to talking about lifestyle and, and bringing it to the table in a way that makes sense to whatever platform you're influencing on, it's important that you're clear about what information you're sharing. And Climate Power has been amazing because they have an incredibly powerful group of advisors uh, that are guiding which information we should be putting out at a time. And we're kind of moving together in unison as individual people, but with the same messaging. And that's where you create change. That's where you create the wave that will wash over large masses of people and then hopefully create that critical mass that we need to keep the momentum going. 
Absolutely. I'm glad that you brought up Climate Power 2020 because I want to ask you a little bit about democracy and the democratic process that has really been infiltrated with climate messaging. I was so shocked and pleased to see how much discussion was underway when it came to climate change this year and this presidential cycle. And I was so proud to see people really looking for information about climate change in informing their voting decisions. And we saw this big push for climate voters and we saw this big push for uh, creating a clean energy transition team and, and everything that comes along with what it means to be proactive about climate change on the federal level. And I'd love to talk to you a little bit about how you feel climate change was portrayed for the first time in the media, especially because you are the climate communicator here. So how do you feel like climate change was communicated this presidential cycle? I think the climate movement in general was communicated very well. And it kind of kicked off for me personally uh, after attending the climate march in New York City last year, last September. One of the largest marches, it is, I believe it was the largest march in the U.S. with over 250,000 people in attendance. That was so empowering. And uh, we're listening, of course, to like Greta Thunberg came and spoke. Jaden Smith and Willow Smith came to perform. And Chitesca Martinez was there as well. And there was just this... Oof, just amazing energy in the air. Uh, we also heard from Dr. Ariana Elizabeth Johnson, you know, esteemed marine biologist and climate expert. I mean, she was there to give a speech too. And it just felt this, it felt like it was this massive just intersection of everyone from all walks of life coming together finally to speak up and to know that this was the most important issue on our, on our table right now as a human race. We have to address this in order for anything else to work. We need our climate to be livable and we need people to have a just and sustainable future ahead of them. So when it comes to climate power 2020, I mean, I think what I love about it is that they put the Trump administration like on the line They were because over the last four years, all we've seen them do is ignore the experts. They're not believing the science. They're, you know, giving everything away in our country to the big oil executives and giving them so much space to do whatever they want, which is literally destroying our, our home. And then also taking down all these really important public health protections that have protected people thus far and just letting all the floodgates open. So it's time for us to act. We have to act right now. And Climate Power has done a wonderful job of bringing that messaging to the forefront and then engaging with people like myself to help continue to you know move that wave and make sure that everyone hears this information and that they feel motivated because when it comes to climate since it's an existential crisis the everyday person definitely could easily falter into uh, apathy it's very easy to do that but what i hope is that moving forward as we move into 2021 that this same group of people who felt compelled to share and to talk about climate policies and, and figuring out how we're going to push this next Biden administration to make sure that they're doing what they need to do. Uh, we got to keep the momentum going. Let's talk about that. How are we going to keep the momentum going? Because I feel like there must be some sense of fatigue, especially among the climate community, people who have been pushing so hard for this to finally be a conversation. And now that we're here, how are we going to keep that momentum going? Do you feel like, is it still on the hands of the Biden administration? How can the everyday person get involved? Like, what does it mean to continue to be active in the climate movement now? You're definitely right. The fatigue is real. I feel it. I mean, I, I just want this holiday to just be a little bit of rest so we can prepare for the new year. But I think to keep, keep the momentum going, we really have to provide 
strategy. At this point, we're, we've been pushing against the grain when it comes to like dealing with the Trump administration, but now we have to be proactive in coming up with strategies that work for our local communities. So for those who are pretty tired right now, who are just exhausted from this whole battle that we've been living through the last four years, I think it's really about getting back to your roots and looking around you in your own neighborhood. What are the things and changes that you could advocate for that would make sense for your particular community? And start there and just begin there. And then we can continue to, to formulate proof of concept, really, like looking at how communities work together, how they provide food security for one another, how we handle water management and clean water access, as well as energy efficiency. All of these aspects are all parts of the puzzle that we need to figure out locally ourselves. And then that will inform the national strategy and give us the toolkit and the ideas and the you know beta tested concepts that we can implement across the board. I appreciate that you have this emphasis on local community and local first, because I think that up until, again, this recent presidential cycle, there wasn't the same emphasis on local communities as there has been in the past, I suppose. I think that people are starting to look at their local budgets. And, you know, when we talk about defunding the police, that was very much the first time that people were looking at the budgets of their municipalities and where their tax dollars were going. And I love to use that as an example of saying, you really do need to look at how your tax dollars are being spent. You have to look at how you are electing the sheriffs in your area, the judges in your area. I, the district I attorneys, the, big ones. The, the district attorneys. Yeah, there's now this understanding or this newfound appreciation for your local community and why you have to vote locally. Yeah, it's, it's clear as day. That's, that's really the marching orders that we have as the American people progress forward. We have to look and take care of each other, take care of our neighbors. Like, do you know your neighbor? That's a really simple question to ask yourself, your neighbor or neighbors. Um, have you introduced yourself? How are you guys working together to make sure your community is safe? Like these are all things that we have to do individually in order to be stronger collectively. I love that so much. Talk to me a little bit about how you feel that sense of neighborly appreciation has changed, especially in the last year or during the lockdown. I feel like you must have such a pulse on marginalized communities, BIPOC communities, especially because you did speak earlier about how you did not necessarily feel like you were represented in the science formal space. Well, I think that we've definitely taken a quantum leap forward uh, in making sure that there is equity and access to certain sectors that were previously not available, Um, but there's still so much more work to do. I think now that we've acknowledged the issue of racism, from the front end and saying, okay, yeah, it's real. Stop denying it. Stop gaslighting. This is this is a real issue that Black Americans and people of color and Indigenous peoples in the U.S. face every single day. So now what are we going to do about it? How are we going to change it? And for me personally, I mean, I definitely felt this flurry of, of requests and things that came in from June on and still right now happening, you know, where people are like, oh, we want to feature you. We want to make sure we put you in. And they're like, that's wonderful. And I, I really appreciate the amplification, but we need to make sure that you're clear that you're not here just for the moment, but for the movement and that you're going to move forward and you're going to change your own personal behaviors and perspectives when it comes to like making sure that your black, brown and indigenous neighbors are, are feeling good, are getting everything that they need. They have access 
and that we're treating each other equitably. It's such a simple thing and it's just love thy neighbor. That is the core of this concept. It's like, how do you show love to others, period? Like it's not that complicated <laughs> and commit to it. Yeah. And say you're gonna you're gonna put others in at, at times you know before yourself to make sure that everybody's taken care of. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I I love that we both grew up in South Florida because I was just thinking as you were sharing that about just how diverse South Florida is and the melting pot that is Miami and Broward and what it means to be from a really heavily diverse area and. I have to say that until I left Miami, I didn't realize how not diverse other places were. And I think that this disconnect of cultures is really strange in a lot of parts of the country. I think that like having to teach people that racism is real is really shocking. But I mean, that's also a very privileged way for me to think, to think that like everyone has the same views that I do on what it means to be equitable. I think it's, you know, I think a lot of it is just teaching people and dismantling culture in a lot of places, which is unfortunate, but a reality. Yeah, it's definitely a reality. We we have to dismantle certain aspects of our cultures because we have to see how they are negatively impacting others. And if they're doing that, then it's time for it to change. And so for, yeah, being a Miami native and growing up in South Florida, we, we've got the world in our small little geographic area, really, truly. We have the Caribbean, we have South Americans, we have Europeans, and it's beautiful. But I will say from my own personal perspective, I, I've always felt that Miami is more of a, like, sounds so funny, but like a tossed salad. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like culture is kind of clumped together in Miami and they... <laughs> it's true. It's, I've heard this before. It's true. It's yeah. true. Yeah. Whereas like a place like New York, that is truly a melting pot because everybody's pretty integrated and living side by side. And so I would love to see that in the future that Miami will become this more of a melting pot and be able to embrace everyone that's in, in those sectors and that we'll see truly diverse leadership because that's something that's lacking in Miami when it comes to the local government level. We kind of see the same person in office nine times out of 10 and that has to shift. And so yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited. I think we're all having these really necessary conversations and as tough as they can be, we're still have, many of us have this willingness to have them in the first place. And that's where change begins. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. I totally agree with the toss salad metaphor because <laughs> it's interesting how cultures do clump together in Miami. And I didn't mean to like go down this Miami rabbit hole with you. But I think that it's an important case study. And I like to use Miami as a case study for a lot of things in my life or in my work or especially while I was in school because it's such a planned city. It's done on a grid system. There are reasons that the neighborhoods clump the way they do. Immigration status, I'm Cuban. So I always think about like Cuban communities and Cuban pockets in yeah. certain cities and why they attach to each other. But anyway, moving on from culture, I would love to harp on this other note you made when you talked about growing up in South Florida, and that was marine biology. And tying that back into the work that you're doing now and the administration that we're seeing come in, do you feel like there is enough of an emphasis on the oceans and marine life in the current climate conversation? Kind of a wild card question, but I don't ever see it, I feel like. I know. I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I agree with you. I think it's it's not at the forefront where the ocean should be because the ocean is our climate engine and it actually holds most of the solutions that we need to push forward in order to resolve you know, our impact on the planet. And it's the biggest carbon sink. That's where all of our carbon has been going since the dawn of the industrial era. And now the ocean has reached its carrying capacity. It can 
no longer take that much carbon in and it's changing the chemistry of the water where we're seeing, you know, it's becoming more acidic and animals who build their own shells aren't able to do so because of the chemistry of the water. We're seeing these super storms develop over the ocean because the water's too warm. And so there's, there are so many different factors there, but again, the ocean holds majority of the solutions that we need in order to address climate change and uh, things like whether it's vertical ocean farming, where they're fishermen transforming their industry into growing things like oysters and kelp and mollusks, other mollusks that are absorbing a lot of that carbon and transferring it into food. And so they're able to harvest the seafood uh, sustainably and provide it for those who love seafood and also provide for themselves and then also sequester carbon at the same time. And so win, win, win. And so that's just one example of the plethora of solutions that the ocean holds. I've never heard that described so quickly and eloquently. I love oh. that so much. <laughs> I feel like when I hear about ocean-related climate solutions, I always hear about geoengineering or climate engineering and the bubbling of the ocean for increased albedo or things like that, things that are really not long-term solutions. And I think when we talk about sustainable farming and fishing and when we think about fishermen being able to not only have a career, but also be able to feed their families. That goes back to what we were saying about culture and how to restructure culture in a very climate conscious way. People at the center of the climate solutions. Absolutely. People need, they need solutions in order to provide for their families as well as do the right thing. And there are lots of innovative ideas out there. Now it's a matter of investing in them and also implementing them and scaling them up. So right now we need those who are in affluent positions who have the, the monetary resources to invest in new blossoming companies like, you know, vertical ocean farming companies and put their money where their mouth is and help them scale up so that we can have this, you know, wide, widespread impact coast to coast and do it and just do it. That's, that's really where we're at at this point. We just have to, we just have to make it happen. I mean, I couldn't agree more. It's just about doing it. I have a question for you that I don't mean to put you on the spot, but because you are so well-versed in ocean-related climate solutions, which I feel like, again, I never hear enough about, do you have a favorite climate solution? It's kind of a weird question, but do you have one that you feel like isn't getting enough play in the media or people aren't talking about it enough that you're really intrigued by? Yeah, that's a great question. I think one of the climate solutions that I'm super intrigued by is essentially coral farming. And ironically enough, I, I just spoke today, I spoke to my friend, Sam Tisher, who's the co-founder of Coral Vita, and they're a coral farm that's based in Freeport, Bahamas. And so my family, I have culture and heritage from the Bahamas, but primarily from Jamaica, but I have lots of family in Freeport. And to know that they're there right now, uh, creating this project where they're essentially accelerating the growth of certain coral species in that region and then replanting them back out on the reef to help reestablish the reef and hopefully enhance its health and draw more fish back to the coral too. They're doing such an amazing job of implementing this idea that they tested out and proved the concept. And now they're working with investors who are helping them grow their coral farm. And it's also be going to become a tourist destination so that people visiting the Bahamas can come and see this project and see the process and learn a little bit of marine science and then also learn about climate issues and all of these things. It's it's so multi-leveled and I would love to see that particular solution scaled up and, and taken across all of the, the tropical regions. So every island should have a coral farm. <laughs> that is so cool. That's so cool. I feel like coral is one of those not necessarily hot topic issues, but people always like to hear about coral. I'm always thinking of 
every three months we see a headline that's like the Great Barrier Reef is dying again or massive coral bleaching or whatever it is. And people that are not necessarily intricately involved in scuba diving or uh, marine biology or whatever it may be don't have a good understanding of what a coral reef really operates as and just how it is an ecosystem within itself. And the value of coral reefs, I think, is portrayed differently in the mainstream news than it is in the day-to-day with people who may otherwise be familiar with it. So anyway, it's like a long run around, but I love that you shared that so much. Thank you so much for that. I wanted to say that I hope if someone's listening to this episode right now and they're, they've been considering becoming a science communicator, which is kind of the formal title of what I do, mm-hmm. I would say go for it. I think there are a lot of people out there, especially, you know, people, young people like yourself, you have a graduate degree, you've gone through that whole process. And now you're here looking for new ways to communicate what you've learned and what you are currently learning. And for me personally, I consider myself a lifelong student. Although I don't have a graduate degree, I'm constantly working with graduate students, PhDs, postdocs, and learning from them directly. And I just feel so privileged to have that opportunity because my my knowledge base just keeps expanding and I never I don't want that to end. And that's the perk of being a science communicator. You get this opportunity to seek out the information and learn it because you know when you can teach something, you actually understand it. That's proof. And so so yeah, go for it. Go beyond your comfort zone. A lot of, I think, science enthusiasts and those who have worked in science tend to just kind of shy away from promotional activity or any type of comms or marketing. If you have an inkling or even just some kind of curiosity about it, go for it. We need you right now. This time is where science communicators will shine. And I think it's really going to be the the deciding factor of how we're going to move forward. The more science communicators we have in the world, the quicker we'll accelerate toward the just and sustainable future that we all need and want. I agree. I think that's an excellent place to leave the audience. Danny. thank you so, so, so much. I appreciate that. And I love everything that you said. I love everything that you stand for. And I have to say, yeah, I love thinking of myself as a lifelong student. I love the opportunity to speak with people like you that educate me and enlighten me and force me to think about things that I haven't previously thought about. So thank you so much for joining. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) 